Welcome to the Eurointelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today we want to talk about the UK-EU relationship once again and the question whether this relationship will or should change in the next few years given Britain's alienation with its own arrangement with the EU and a recorded shift in public opinion. Jack, what do you what do you think is going to happen? Is the EU, is the UK going to not re return to EU membership? That's probably a bit early to, to speculate, but how do you see the momentum? Um, yeah, so the, the first thing to address on rejoining itself, and I want to be really clear about rejoining especially, is that it's not just the UK's decision, it's the EU's decision. And I think the major barrier there is, regardless of the shifts in public opinion that will take place in the next decade, I very highly doubt we, the UK, would be able to rejoin the European Union under anything like the same terms we had previously. Oh, no, uh, you know, what, there's, there's, uh, there's absolutely no enthusiasm in the EU for a half-in-half-out country like the UK was. No, no, that, would, that, that wouldn't be the case. I mean, I think that that's right. The, the various opt-outs the UK blackmailed the EU into over the, over the decades, they're not going to be, I mean, including the opt-out of the euro. Uh, now, the EU has been pragmatic on the euro, that it allowed member states not to join it. You know, Poland famously uh, was allowed to join the EU, even though it didn't even change its constitution to make euro membership possible. I still think that was a big error by the EU. And virtually all the country with which the EU has had difficulties, Poland, Hungary, the UK, were countries that were not in the eurozone. We've always advised, I think Suzanne and I have been, yeah. been campaigning on this uh, for like decades, that the EU should actually make euro membership conditional on the currency, the, the currency of the EU. It's been stipulated as the currency of the EU. And the, the UK's opt-out and the Danish opt-out made it legally possible for countries to actually separate that That to the Swedish took another interpretation of this, but it's, it's their own interpretation. It's not a legal interpretation. It's certainly never done by the by, by the EU law, and no one can force a country to into membership. But this thing will come up that the EU would say, "We're happy for you to rejoin, but it's got to be full in, not half in, as you were before. You would not just be rejoining the single market and the customs union and the bits that you like." So yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. There's not going to be this kind of pick and choose approach and. Uh, also, we don't have anybody with, I think, the negotiating now stature and the people around her have when they actually kind of managed to negotiate that complex of opt-outs for the UK. Yeah, she uh, was back inside. In, you know, they were inside. They, 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 were, they, were, they, were, they were inside, yeah, and they, they have veto. But also, she was just a really tough character. But um, getting back to where I see the relationship going, I mean, uh, so if the first thing is, one of my guiding assumptions is that the Conservatives will probably lose the next general election. And at the moment, it looks like Labour will come with a workable majority Of course, we could see this change in the next two years, but this is simply based on the evidence that we have at the moment. If this were to be the case, then I think Labour would, the first thing that they would try to do is stop having this kind of almost performatively antagonistic relationship with the European Union. There'd be attempts at finding smaller kind of openings for cooperation with the European Union. But I see in the first term of a, a new Labour government them being very cautious. But it's already happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is, is, um, he's not going to renegotiate anything. The tone has changed. Uh, but the tone has changed, but some other things haven't, right? So for instance, on, on something like retained EU law, I think that will not be something that would go forward under a Labour government. So the retained EU law bill is still making its way through Parliament at the moment. It, it, it would sunset all EU-derived legislation in the UK except for identified exceptions that ministers have picked out by the end of 2023. Uh, incidentally, I don't think this is going to happen either. 
No, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I, they, they, they recently discovered something like 1,400 new new laws that they haven't known about yeah, they before. Have, they have, they, they're they're constantly have, finding yes. new EU law under yes, the uh, under the carpet. It's, so they're, they're, they're it's not going to <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I cannot. It, it almost makes, I mean, it's serious, but it almost makes me laugh. But no, I mean, so I think that things like that will, a new, a new kind of spirit of constructiveness. But I think during the first term of a Labour government, they will be very cautious because they're clearly trying to figure out the extent to which conservative government policies of the last decade or so represent the political medium point in the in the United Kingdom. And on a number of different issues like this, like immigration, they will tread very carefully at the beginning until they've had a chance to work through where they think they can diverge a little bit more. But in the second term, and again, this is assuming that they would get two terms, at least two terms, uh, I would expect to see some further movement. I think that would probably come in the form of the single market rather than the customs union, because that's been really the focal point of discussion in the UK. And I think the attitude within the UK is that the single market regulatory alignment ultimately matters more to the trading relationship than the customs union does. Yeah, that's an arguable point. I, I assume this is the opposite. I mean, I actually sort of aligned with the Labour Party's official position before the last election that the customs union is the is, is the point because because the the customs union would have allowed them to have their separate. They, they would, separate would have allowed them to get rid of freedom of movement and things like freedom this. of movement because that that the, the single market comes with all sorts of regulatory regulatory alignment. So so I think if the UK took this path would require a pretty mature debate about things like freedom of movement and immigration. The single market, an issue we, we wrote about this week, was the uh, City of London's role uh, and the clearing. The uh, cl- clearing, yeah. That the EU is trying hard to get clearing back to Brussels. Not that easy, actually, to, to, to not to Brussels, but to back, get clearing back into the Eurozone. And, uh, Paris is probably... Paris or Frankfurt or Amsterdam, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, classic, the, the classics. But it's not so easy because there's a lot of this stuff is... Is in London and it's uh, networking effects and it's cluster yeah, effects, all these things. It's also firms that are used to dealing within the regulatory framework yeah. set, and that that I think is a big one: regulatory continuity. Yeah. And of course, the English language. We know that English language plays a lot, a big role for all the multinationals. That's why also Ireland was such a wonderful place to be for the U.S. companies to settle down and. Uh, yeah. And it's the same thing for the financial sector. The financial sector went to London, uh, whereas the the tech sector uh, went to Ireland and used this as a a gateway into the EU. I mean, it has changed now for the UK, but what hasn't changed yet, uh, at least in this kind of uh, extent, is uh, the companies moving their way out of London. And that has uh, many, many, many facets, many reasons. I think it didn't happen immediately, this kind of exodus of financial companies Mm -hmm. from the United Kingdom, but it is, I think, something that we'll see more. Now, for instance, um, the LSE, the stock exchange is trading places frequently with, you know, the kind of stock exchange in Paris and in Amsterdam, whereas, you know, previously it was a clearer leader. So I think more financial activity will just kind of slowly leach away to Paris and uh, Amsterdam and Frankfurt over time. But in terms of this, I mean, I think that eventually they will need to sort something out because the situation as it stands right now is untenable. Yeah, it's untenable because you know we you know we didn't favor breakfast we, we, but we did some breakfast. <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> breakfast means breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> 
we didn't favor Brexit, but it's we certainly said it can be made to work if you actually have a plan, which obviously wasn't the case. Uh, you know, they had a plan pandemic, they had a plan for whatever they they were doing. It's hard to say what they were doing, but whatever they were doing, they had a plan for, but not for Brexit. They only had a plan to get out. Beyond these things, this didn't this didn't happen, and uh, you would have needed a plan for Brexit. As having a sunset clause on EU regulation is kind of stupid, actually, in, in, in a sense, because you want to have something in place. So the idea would be say you want something you know you want to be able to do things you couldn't do before oh i would say it's more than kind of stupid i would say it's really stupid uh, and it's it's and you know there were we we were discussing last week uh, the inflation reduction yeah yeah the irs they could have done that the UK could have done that. Oh, yeah, yeah, and that was a, and that was a debate, especially on the kind of pro Brexit left you know, in the UK. You know, have a campaign to the Germans. Say, look, you can come to come to come to England. You don't have to observe any of these stupid EU laws anymore. And we give you money. You don't have you, you don't pay these hideous corporation taxes. Enjoy the uh, wonderful food while you're and, here. Yeah. yeah, okay, maybe maybe not that, but but I mean, you know, you could have probably made a case. No, no, yeah, the, 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 there was case for deviation on state aid, exactly. but that that kind of fell. Out of the wayside. I mean, so I think one of the things looking back on it that really strikes me about the kind of reasoning for Brexit is, and I think at this particular moment was emblematic of some of the reasoning for it was, do you remember Penny Morden talking about Turkey entering the EU in 2016? Now, of course, what Penny Morden said in that interview was factually untrue, right? that the, the UK couldn't stop Turkey from entering the EU. It, it, it in fact can, right? It's quite literally a very basic element of the foundational treaties. However, um, she recently, I guess, tried to defend what she said by saying, oh, but, you know, we wouldn't have had like a referendum on Turkey joining the EU or something like that. Um, at, at least if I'm recalling what she said recently correctly. No, the that, government would have. Said yeah, that. the government would have simply decided, right? So I think that was very emblematic. And I think what that revealed was that a lot of the sentiment behind this was really about problems with the governance of the UK specifically. It's the same thing when people talked about, you know, Brussels bureaucrats making these decisions. And it's like the vast majority of this stuff was signed off by the UK government. For my reading, one of the fundamental reasons is that identity economics trumps rational economics in a sense that if you have a rational argument for something, you have a plan uh, that actually could work uh, for, for all economic reasons. But because there is an identity, there's a worry that sort of the Turks or even other migrants, like the Polish plumber, we had the Polish plumber, all these stories were scare stories for the people. And this take back control campaign took root in a, in a, in a psyche of a country that sort of was more steered by fear and loss of identity. We wanted to reassure its own identity by using Brexit and using Brexit for this effect. But it was an identity effect. It was not really about economics. And for a lot of the voters in, in these constituencies then actually defeated the polls because the polls, they didn't predict that. They predicted that Brexit would not happen. But this complete last moment rally uh, behind this Brexit moment was was driven by the uh, yeah. My understanding, that's my understanding. No, no. And, and, and also it's worth mentioning that a lot of these Brexit voters were disproportionately older voters who were on a pension and outright on their home, right? They are more economically secure voters and it makes sense to kind of vote with your identity when, frankly, the kind of 
economic impacts are not going to hit you as a voter as much. Yeah, and they said, well, what, what do we have to do with the EU? Of course, and that's true for a lot of people in the country. Mm-hmm. And they, they do they spend their holidays here. They're not going to travel water. And why why would, should they care about the EU? For them, it was an easy decision. But of course, the, the whole complexity of it, what it, what it means, it's it's coming out only now after the Brexit vote. And the same is true for the Northern Ireland Protocol. I mean, this Northern Ireland Protocol becomes such an issue of true identity for the unionists. Yeah, and I think if you were to talk to a Northern Irish person on both sides of the kind of political divide there, they would tell you that it is very much reflecting a long tradition of people on the uh, on the British mainland not knowing or caring terribly much about uh, Northern Irish politics. So we have another victim story here, and that can be eternally repeated again and again and again. And also, I mean, at one point it can turn over into violent clashes. It's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, the violence is expressed by the way that the DOP is is refusing to take part in an executive or to elect a speaker in the regional assembly. For me, it's fascinating to see how identity economics is so much trumping uh, the rational debate that we, uh, the three of us, can have here in a safe enclosure in a, in a nice office and just talking about it, uh, but it really sort of then hit or confronted with the reality and practicality of people's lives uh, seems to sort of fall short of it. Yeah, if, if in Italy, if you had a referendum, say say after the Monti you know, premiership, they would have voted to leave the EU. There was a real low point. Italy's flipped from being the most enthusiastic member to being the least enthusiastic. And it depends always on the moment. I don't think that would be the case today. Today, the attitudes are much more positive. But, you know, there were moments in German history when Germany would probably have been vulnerable to a, a no vote had a referendum be held, you know, like, you know, like today after they've been kicked out of the out of the football, blaming unfair game by another European country for their for their plight. I mean, if you just look at the German papers. Now, you have, the, there are really good and bad days to hold a referendum, mm. and you would probably not want to hold it today. You want to wait a little bit and until things of people are becoming more enthusiastic, and, you know, this we were robbed type of thing, and this Germany had for, for since ever. I remember my youth, the story of the EU was, of my youth was, uh, you know, we're paying them. That was the story. Yeah, we, we, we send, but you know, also as well, though, I think, and this is the real difference, I think, between the UK and these countries is that Germany and France and the Netherlands and Italy, uh, maybe less so in Italy, but certainly in Germany, France and the Netherlands, national level politicians are very cognizant of these grievances yeah. and they adapt their policy stances to the EU to take account of these, of this, right? So the, the, the French, for instance, a lot of what they do in terms of their European policies is kind of centered around like domestic attitudes towards the European Union. And they, they kind of try, they, they know that these grievances exist and they try to adjust for them. Whereas, I mean, I think really in the case of Brexit, a lot of these things like, the, for instance, on immigration, right? There, there was talk, of course, about taking back control. But the reality of it was that the kind of large amount of EU uh, migration that occurred to the UK occurred primarily because the UK was the only big Western European country to not place a moratorium on Central and Eastern European immigration into the country uh, after 2004, right? Mm -hmm. That was a decision that the British government took, Mm -hmm. right? Um, They could have also been tighter on um, enforcing numerous elements of migration policy that they were perfectly within their rights to do when they were EU member states. I used to live in Denmark, and so I know myself how how tight you can be while still being in the EU. It just was not happening, right? These were decisions that the British government took, either very conscious decisions or decisions to prioritize other things. 
you know, around the single market. Of course, that was an initiative that the UK actually spearheaded when it existed. Of course, this was going to end up disappointing a lot of people, this Brexit process, because the only thing that really changed was the relationship with the EU. Whereas, as I see it, almost more the fundamental problem was, are the UK government listening to us? And if things don't change about how the government here makes decisions, then it's not really going to make any difference to those grievances. But I think this is actually a good experience because uh, it's so easy for, for people to blame outside forces. And Brussels has always been the... Uh, the, uh, the one to blame for all the illnesses and all the, the, the bad things. And politicians are very good at this. But they are. But I, I think importantly, a lot of the time they have, they know where the line is and they don't, mm. they try to avoid getting too carried away. Even in the Netherlands, they try to avoid getting too carried away with it. Yeah. I remember I was always told by my English neighbors in 2000 as well, all this regulation, all these laws and all these things it's, it's just uh, it's all the EU's fault and if only we were without the EU we would have a, a simple life and everything would be nice and uh, easy yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but of course that never happened and then it's not going to happen either because it's not the reality it's not really a question of EU I think if you look at uh, a more global level we do have regulations due diligence and in the digital world we have so many due diligence things coming across and that's also coming from the us we have sanctions and all these things they come uh, whether or not we are part of the eu and so uh, to blame it or you can't actually uh, find the, the villain in this in this narrative so easily anymore yeah um getting getting back though i think to the future and the outlook of the uk i mean I think really the big decisive one is going to be how this ties in with the debate on immigration. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, how do you see? I think that's sort of the question. I mean, that I agree with you. The choice, as far as we can say today, very unlikely to win the next election. Uh, so Labour will be in. Starmer will be the prime minister. He has committed himself not to not even to open the single market and the customs union. So he's completely ring fencing himself right now because uh, he doesn't want to have debate debate this issue in the next in the next election. But it doesn't stop him from raising the issue next time around because he, he won't be able to complete any of these things in, in the first term anyway. But it could be a labor theme for, for a second term. How do you think they will approach this issue? Can obviously start with mood music. I can see all that stuff that's that's going to happen. But there are treaties. There's a trade treaty, there's a withdrawal agreement. Are they going to start with those first? Basically saying, look, let's have a different trade agreement. Yeah, I mean, I think where they would probably start with is in sector-specific areas, some greater degrees of regulatory alignment in exchange for easier access mm-hmm. in, in those kind of specific areas, right? So it would be a matter of kind of looking at where... That is perhaps the easiest and most expedient to do in the short term. So not changes of agreements, just basically using the current agreement. Using the current, but but also maybe even just like tweaking or modifying the current agreement, right? I don't think there would be an overhaul of the actual principle. I mean, I just think that they would be looking to, to take a finer tooth comb to the areas of alignment. At least that's how I understand Labour's policy as it has been spoken by Labour, right? But, but then I, I think the conclusion that you would reach... And at least in my opinion, is that without some really radical change to our relationship with the EU, it probably wouldn't achieve very much. I, I don't know what you guys think about that. I mean, I think demography will play play a role. Demography we, certainly we, will. Yeah, we have, and I, I do believe that referendums should stand for at least two parliaments, because otherwise there's no case for them. Otherwise, you can you know you can use parliament to make a decision. So it has an idea. But if uh, in twenty six or afterwards, you know, after twenty twenty six, there is a, one can legitimately call a second referendum because things have changed. The relationship has changed. The electorate has changed. Uh, you know, a lot of people will no longer be there. 
that were there before, and new voters will have been will have entered to the voting age. Many people who were 17 at the at the time of the uh, referendum will be 27. And their voice will have been disenfranchised, and especially the young, very much pro pro remain. And we and we also experienced what it means to be without the Polish plumber, without the yeah. uh, the people in the service sector, and having uh, having to face shortages, waiting times when it comes to luggage, when it comes to restaurants, when it comes to hairdressers. Uh, all these things are becoming visible in the daily lives and I think this was a was a good way of actually showing the effects uh, while you want to get rid of migration this is it uh, so this is there's a downside to it and uh, in that sense we experienced that uh, I mean in terms of immigration uh, Sunak already uh, changed the tone uh, they had an agreement with uh, the French to deal with this externalized border of, uh, because we've, we've seen a high increase in crossings of uh, illegal migrants uh, over the, the channel and the last thing we want to have is another humanitarian crisis and another capsized boat and uh, migrants come to shore uh, no longer alive. So they're still not the, where the French want them to be, to open an asylum application center in on the French territory. That would be the ideal scenario from the French perspective. But the British say no to that. At the moment, it's more border control. So the French ramped up. They get, they get paid by the English, basically, to ramp up the police forces and to prevent the boats from going into the channel, which, of course, it's just buying time. It's really not... not, not no, it's not solving anything. And I mean, I think the argument from the government here, frankly, I mean, this is just my personal opinion, but I frankly think it's disingenuous, right? Because if the problem was really the kind of method of arriving in the UK and not the principle in the first place, then you would open a processing centre in France, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes people do have a genuine reason why they want to claim asylum in the UK, like language family. ability, family, family links. Mm -hmm. there, there are plenty of reasons why you would want to do this. But I'm um, also coming on to immigration. I think another thing that will feature is, and, and so there was actually a column in The Economist about this this week um, that pointed out that um, the UK has had, the UK only started experiencing net immigration as opposed to emigration in 1983, right? Through the 1970s, which I'm, I'm sure you can remember, I, I, I wasn't personally there, but um, during the 1970s, of course, that was a decade of people in Britain leaving to go, you know, short term to Germany and the well, longer term. Alfredo say in Pet, right? Yes. That was um, a famous, famous television series of a British bricklayer going to Germany and just loving it there. Remember, I, I moved the opposite way, but it was interesting at that time there were more Brits moving to Germany than Germans moved to Brits. I, I do remember that well, that period. It was, it was a, definitely a reversal. The question that, that Labour can address, which the Tories are definitely not going to address, is the question of changing the rules of legal uh, immigration by lifting or changing the salary thresholds and qualification criteria for uh, work visas. Mm. At the moment, it's very strict. This trust wanted to lower this, I understand. And Suella Braverman, her home secretary, wanted to raise it. There was, there was a big clash. The at the, yeah, the, 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 the threshold, threshold, right? And, and the whole the idea for lowering it is basically to have, you know, you would get the net effect, you would get more immigration. In the service uh, sector? In the services sector, you would get the, the plumbers back. Uh, it wouldn't be, you know... It wouldn't and your baggage? And, and you're back. Well, the big ones, um, the big fight was over shortage occupations and florists and yeah, hairdressers, the, right? The many, the, the, exactly. You can. You, the, there are there are two things. There's a salary threshold, and there's a list. Yeah, of yeah there's a list for people who are exempt exactly. from the normal conditions exactly. of immigration. And then there's right? a third question of handling, because because at the moment it's so complicated to get somebody. You really need to be desperate, mm -hmm. and you spend you, you spend, spend money. You spend money. You need a lawyer. This cannot be a process that a, a normal business person unless they have a legal department, a normal business person cannot undertake. So if you run a restaurant, 
mm-hmm. and you wanted to hire somebody, you would not be able to to go through the legal complexity of the immigration procedure. So you need you need help. So there are three issues: too high salary, you know, the person you want is not on the list, and the cost of getting that person is prohibitive. So what you need is basically fixing this. And this is something that you can do without changing any, you know, the Brexit agreements. This is something that the UK can do unilaterally. The whole idea of an immigration policy, as Boris Johnson was saying at the time, was to to target immigration levels according to the needs of industry. That didn't happen. No, no, that that didn't happen. I mean, if you were going to run that sort of system, you'd look at Canada or Australia yeah. where that does happen, right? Yeah. Instead, these questions around thresholds and shortage occupations have become unduly politicized, right? Yeah. And uh, you, you can't operate an effective points-based system if you have a massive row every time somebody talks about adding another sector to the shortage occupation list. And you can't have that if you, if you have uh, 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 overall goals. Uh, if you have the goal of, of oh, getting of, rid of immigration yeah, yeah, getting, altogether, getting rid of immigration, yes. then obviously you can't have a flexible points-based system either. So you, yeah. you know, you've got to, one of them has to go. And that's something, you know, I, the question I have, would Labour do this? Well, so Labour at the moment are taking a hard line on immigration, right? They're like, we need less. We're all just sitting here rolling our eyes. You can, yeah. But um, but it's um, the bigger question is that the Conservatives have been talking about that for more than a decade, and they've consistently failed to do it, right? They keep on talking about lowering net migration, and they haven't done it. It is at this point almost just the the political imperative colliding with economic reality. I think the bigger question is how long. It is going to take labor to realize that and whether they realize that. At what point do they simply say, look, this is not achievable and we should stop pr- trying to promise to lower net migration because we're just not going to be able to do it. So Nigel Farage has ultimately won this debate now. And it's uh, it doesn't really matter whether you have this party in government or that party in government. It's the, the right to set the agenda. And both of the main parties have adopted that agenda, in- integrated them, and now the fight is between whether one anti-immigration party is going to be remain in government or whether another anti-immigration party is going to win the next election. Incidentally, I think that both parties are almost more frightened of Farage than of each other. One of the kind of looming questions in this debate is always like, is Farage going to come back? He's almost like he who must not be named. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I, I remember people kept on underestimating my Twitter line. A few years ago, there there was a consensus almost saying, forget Farage because he's never won a seat in the in the House of Commons, which was a monstrous misjudgment. Obviously, he didn't. But the point is that the the way he influenced politi- politics, the UK politics, I don't think any politician in this century had more influence uh, on on a shift of UK policy than this man. They still now talk about him for you know his, his reform party or Brexit party, whatever it's called these days, 10% or almost 10% support in the, in the population. He could have significant support in some marginal seats for the Tories. I guess his t- tactical aim will be actually to destroy the Tory party. And he might stand a reasonable chance of succeeding given the, the virtual lack of leadership and legitimacy of the current prime minister. It's not been, you know, he's lost the He's, he's lost not, his own party's but the, but the Tory is not only about the head, it's also about the whole body of the Tory. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're all in the councils and they're all, all, yeah. all in the districts. I mean, I know it from France. It's something that Marine Le Pen always lacked uh, to be deep into uh, yeah. the, the administrations. And that's the, probably the same for, if you if you look at Farage's party, the penetration into policymaking uh, on a district level it's just not the same as from the, from the Tory party. Yeah, but I mean, what the Farages of this world can do, though, is they can really wreck you with the margins. Mm-hmm. And that is almost precisely what Le Pen has done to Les Republicains, right? Yeah. Who have become a massively yeah. diminished force as both Macron in the centre and Le Pen on the far right have wrecked them at the margins. 
Um, speaking of Macron and Le Pen, I think one of the interesting questions for me, I mean, we already know where Farage is in this and the, and the fact that both parties are kind of scared of him. But one of the interesting questions for me is if something actually emerges on the opposite side, right? So one of the other things that happened during the kind of Brexit wars is that the Lib Dems became almost laser focused on the EU and they became a lot more popular as a result of that. One of the things that I, I think about when I look at UK politics is that you have quite a large group of young to middle-aged urban professionals who would normally be considered culturally middle-class but are relatively economically insecure because of the nature of the way the UK's housing market works. They're, 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 they're quite sizable but not really being represented by anybody. So what would happen if a party or political movement were to come along, not in the immediate future, but maybe in five to 10 years time from the other end, right? I, imagining sort of a Volt style political party or something in the UK who would theme themselves around rejoining the EU and maybe capture that kind of vote, right? Is there a potential? Just because, I mean, even in the UK's parliamentary system, nature abhors a vacuum and I could see somebody stepping in just as the Lib Dems kind of tilted themselves uh, during that kind of 2016 to 19 period. No, There's I always think... a movement and a counter movement, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. This is just it. You know, I'm thinking there, there is kind of ample opportunity for a counter movement here. Um, if or, it, Will that materialize? And if so, when will it materialize? I remember when I Brexit campaigned, when I went into schools to campaign for, to campaign for on the bar on Remain, I remember that the, the children were mostly interested in the question of whether they could live in another EU country, their rights, their, their, their own freedom. And that was obviously an issue that really the Remain campaign generally didn't make. It played this down, this whole freedom of movement thing, basically saying it's not so bad rather than it's a great thing. And I think you may find that that this is where... You this, know, will, no, this will be a new one, this right? Will, exactly. Somebody who would say, this is what we want. We want freedom. We want our freedom. We want the freedom to live. We want the freedom to trade. We want the freedom, you know, we want to be, you know, we are part of that, that thing. It's a positive message as opposed to it's good for the city you know? <laughs> but I think the narrative as well for the EU would be probably a different one. The context has changed. It was not a good context when the when the referendum actually took place. The EU had a lot of bad bad news coming out of it. It was it was not a good moment for being enthusiastic about yeah. the EU. Yeah, because you had you had the Greece thing, you had the refugee yeah, crisis. Exactly. Yeah, the, Greece I had thing, a, the Greece thing played played, played a, big a big role. role. Uh, the big way role, yeah. they were treating Greece played a very big role in, the, in, the, in, in in the sense that the people found it very unfair how they treated them. And I think that's that's something now we are sort of in a different regime and a different kind of era uh, that might well change. Yeah. Yeah? I think the, the treatment of Greece played a huge role in flipping uh, you know educated people. Mm -hmm. People who did follow policy, who actually did follow European politics in great detail from a position of either indifference or remain towards Brexit mm -hmm. because they felt the EU acted unethically. And this was not addressed at the time. And the, the problem was that the remain campaign papered over so many of these uh, issues. And that must be different. There must be the remain campaign only had a vision of the UK and Europe, but it didn't have a vision of the EU itself. And that is, I think, the, the, that's hugely important that Britain re enters this not just with, oh, we want to be in, but we actually want the EU to be something, to do something. And that has not happened at all. And that, in my view, would need to happen. I, I would hope that would happen. And, and maybe that force that you mentioned, uh, that new force that has yet to emerge, you know, might be that. That's what they would need to do. I'm, I'm not trusting the, the the old Remain campaigners to, you know, they're now back. I know they're reorganizing themselves, right? Various committees. No, it's, are, new, it's a new generation. But we need, we need a different, a very different way of pushing this.
Yeah, no, and I mean, I think it's it's obviously very different from my generation, right? Which I don't think was really reflected in the Remain campaign. Because my, my generation, people in their like 20s or 30s or whatever, if you went to university, at least you were part of kind of the Erasmus generation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you studied abroad or you knew plenty of EU citizens and stuff. And I mean, for me and for a lot of people of my generation, it was like, well, there's, there's no real difference between us and our European friends. So like, doesn't, doesn't this kind of all make sense anyways? But yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> On that note, I think we'll call it a day. Thank you for listening. Until next week.